House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome, Gerald Posner, for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, uh, Al. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be back with the two of you. Uh, so, uh, now, uh, the last book I, I just read, I know it's been out a while, but um, I love the subject. Um, it was Killing the Dream, and that's the James Earl Ray and the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Such a big title. Um, and I really enjoyed this. And um, what what got you into writing this, first of all? Oh, okay, so... The this book, by the way, it, just as a side note, uh, done I've written twelve books, and as you guys know, they've run everything from Nazi war criminals to you know nine eleven to uh, uh, stories about uh, a biography on Ross Perot. This is one of my personal favorite books, like top two or three. And my wife Trisha, who you guys interviewed recently on a book that she did uh, on the uh, you know the uh, pharmacist of Auschwitz. This is one of her favorite research books ever. Turned out to be, we didn't know that before we started it, but we absolutely relished sort of the mystery of this story, the difficulty of answering some of it, and figuring out this enigma of James Earl Ray really turns out to be a mystery. It came about, I'd done a book back that was published in 93 on the Kennedy assassination uh, called Case Closed. Uh, in which after a couple of years of research, I concluded, much to the surprise of my publisher at the time as well, that it was in fact, although the Warren Commission got a lot of things wrong, including the shooting sequence and the timing and, and not looking into uh, the mob connections or possible mob connections of Jack Ruby, uh, that in the end, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald alone had killed Kennedy. And uh, that book was a... Uh, a good seller, had uh, created a lot of controversy, a lot of people disagreed with it, some people agreed with it, and and after that book, I went on to to do a uh, biography of Ross Perot, he was running for president the second time. I then came to an agreement with Random House to do a book on the history of Motown, Motown, the business of Motown. I figured this will be a change of course. I won't have uh, any conspiracy theorists from the Kennedy assassination arguing with me over that he's the angle of the book. I can talk about uh, you know whether they stole money from royalties in in, in the hit factory. And uh, what happened is in the early part of that research, uh, Martin Luther King's oldest son, uh, the Dexter, went into a prison where James Earl Ray was, met him, shook his hand. I remember that. And it was sort of a galvanizing moment. Said the King family believes you, believes that you are innocent. And and I went to uh, back to Random House and said I'd like to put the Motown book on hold. And if you'll allow me uh, to spend the next couple of years researching the King assassination, which I always my inclination was that it was likely just Ray. I never thought of it as much. Of, I didn't think of it as uh, the same mystery as the Kennedy assassination. It turned out to be a more perplexing case. And they said, fine, if you can get the book so that we can publish it on the 30th anniversary of the King assassination, 1998, in April of 98, we'll do it. And, and, and that's what ended up happening. Um, so that's what got us into the book. And, and one sidelight, sometimes, and you know this, you write books, you, you know the, the, the process of research. Occasionally, it's not just being a good and persistent researcher, it's a bit of being lucky, and the luck on this book was, I don't think I've ever had one that broke more news, and that's because the district attorney in Memphis started a reinvestigation of the case as a result of the King family's doubt about who murdered their father, and their investigation, they had some great investigators on it, they were going out, they were interviewing all the, uh, the people who were still alive or witnesses, they had the physical evidence, they were going back through with new scientific testing. Trisha and I went to them and said, you know, we're doing this book, could we have access to your investigation and the discoveries and the new information as it goes along to use in our book? And they said, uh, well, when are you publishing? We said the earliest will be April of 98. They said, oh, no problem. We're coming out with our report in December of 1997, 
So by the time you publish it, will be old news. So we have no problem with you piggybacking, coming inside this and getting the information. You just have to agree not to to publish it uh, before it's out in your book, not to beforehand. No problem, I said. We agreed to that. And the great news was, typical of many, a great group of guys there, but typical of many government operations, they ran slow. They got delayed, and they didn't actually publish until about two weeks after my book came out. So when the book came out, it looked like I had all this new information. It was all the result of their great investigation in Memphis. Oh, wow. But, um, they had allowed me to you know, access to it on the idea that they were going to publish it four months earlier, and they just never finished their report in time. So occasionally, you know, you, you get credit for being a really good investigator, and you should get credit also for being a lucky one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that's – how did you um, – so you went into this thinking that um, he was guilty, and um, was that kind of a surprise that the uh, King family – uh, were sort of taking the side that he was innocent? Yeah, absolutely stunning to me, After, especially after finishing this book, because what I end up doing, okay, on the Kennedy project, I come in thinking that it's likely the mob. So if you ask me what's my bias before the Kennedy book, I think it's a conspiracy likely with the mob because I'm so suspicious, without having done any research about Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who killed the assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, two days later in police custody, it looks like a mob hit. So that's my bias. I end up coming out of that a couple of years later, believing that Oswald alone acted, and that Ruby killed Oswald for his own work motivations. In the, in the Ray King book, I think that Ray killed King, and that's the end of it, and I end up finding a story much more complicated where there is likely a, a, a conspiracy, but what I call a small kitchen conspiracy possibly of his two brothers, John and Jerry. I have to say up front, they've never been charged with the crime, and uh, they've always adamantly denied it, but I lay out my suspicions about them. And I do think that there was very likely, as a uh, congressional investigation in the late 70s showed, a payment, a bounty, for the death of King by white supremacists out of the Midwest, never made its way to at least James Orway, may, may have made its way to one of the family members. So in the end, I go into Kennedy thinking conspiracy mafia come out thinking just Oswald. I go into the King assassination thinking, oh, this is just going to be Ray, and I end up leaving thinking, no, there is in fact a conspiracy, very likely, but what I, not a big government conspiracy, not not um, you know, Jake or Hoover hiding behind bushes shooting at, uh, at King himself, not things like this, uh, but what I call the small type of conspiracy that works because it is so tightly held among a few people. You know, I'm I'm surprised that the King family even uh, were there to shake his hand and stuff. Not even if they thought he wasn't the killer, he was definitely very very racist. Yeah, you know, well, there. I guess two things on that. So, well, people sometimes say to me, "Okay, was was Ray racist?" Yes, but it was. There were people that held even worst, more odious, sinister racist views than he did. The fact that he was racist wasn't the reason he killed King, but it is made it easier for him to kill King. A, 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 contri a contributing, yeah, contributing factor. factor. That's right. And, and, and he was, remember, Ray himself was raised in the poorest possible, uh, you know, what we would have called, in pre-politically correct age, we would have called it white trash. Uh, the uh, really the lowest end of the socioeconomic rung in in Alton, Illinois, a working class neighborhood, comes from a multiple generations of criminals. His great grandfather had been hanged as part of the plumber gang. The uh, his father was a career criminal. His uncle, who helped raise him, a criminal. He was stealing and, and hanging out and doing petty crimes as a young teen. Um, and both of his brothers end up going to jail as felons before he does. Uh, he he, he he grows up in an area where he's so dirt poor, even in, with other families that are poor, that at school he's ridiculed for that poverty. He doesn't have the nickel for lunch. Um, he's always the dirtiest of the group. So the only people that the Ray family could look down on were blacks in the area. They were a lower socioeconomic rung, and that's what often happens. You're there, and so you look for somebody else to bully or to look down on, and that was very much Ray. And then he gets in, you know, as, as you know, from the book, he, he sort of gets an attraction to, 
to Hitler and when he ends up going off into the army and off in, uh, to Germany after the war, uh, he gets involved in the black market. I mean, he's a character and a half, so he's, he holds some pretty odd views, there's no doubt. So that is when you say to yourself, how did the King family embrace that? I don't think they embraced that part of Ray. What, what they did, and I really looked into it a lot, they wouldn't talk to me in the end because they knew they didn't like the conclusion I had. I think that what happened to the King family is they learned after their father's death in 75 and 76 in these congressional investigations about the excesses of the FBI. And the FBI was really terrible when it came to their father. I, there's no doubt about that. They bugged him illegally. They had surveillance on him. They found uh, tapes of his, sort of his, some of the, uh, the uh, extramarital affairs he was having. They sent them to his wife, Coretta Scott King. They suggested he commit suicide. A.J. Edgar Hoover hated the man. Uh, and so the King family said to themselves, look, if Hoover, who was a very powerful FBI chief, and the FBI hated him so much, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, maybe some agents, even if it wasn't Hoover, thought we're going to please uh, the FBI boss, and they got together in this conspiracy, and they went out, and they killed King, and, and Ray's telling the truth, he was just a patsy, and he somehow provided the gun, and they believe it's a much larger conspiracy. It sort of makes Martin Luther King more important if the whole government had to get together to kill him. But the, the thing that they miss with this is Hoover, who did in fact hate King, did not want to make him into a national holiday. And, and I don't mean that in a cavalier way, but Hoover understood that killing King uh, would make him into an instant hero. What he wanted to do instead was to strip him of his honor while he was alive. He wanted people to see him as he thought he was a communist, he wasn't, but he, that's what Hoover thought, and that they would also see him as somebody who wasn't really moral, and that eventually he would lose his backing and his following. He wanted to see him during that time to lose it. That was Hoover's goal, completely yeah. different than what the King family saw it as. Not, he did not want to create a martyr. That's right. Now, I, I, one thing that, um, you know, I wasn't aware of this, but um, the mysterious person named Raoul, um, how did how did how did you discover that, and and what's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, so Raúl is just this. Great, I mean, Ray himself is a great character. He seems like you know he's, he's hard to imagine, but he, I guess um, a young Clint Eastwood could have played him or something in a movie. Uh, you know, the uh, as this loner character who's got a lot more going on inside than not. He, you know, here he is. He he's. He gets away after the assassination. He's able to get to Canada, where he's been before. He's run before when he was on the run. He's and, and then he gets his way over to England. He wants to get to South Africa, which is a white-run racist regime at the time, but he doesn't have enough money. And when he gets arrested, then he gets back to the U.S., and his lawyer convinces him to plead guilty because the evidence is overwhelming against him. And the day after he pleads guilty, he says, ah, I was just kidding, I was lying. The death, the death penalty is off the table. And he starts to spin this incredible tale about Raul, who you just mentioned, which is that when he had escaped from Missouri State Penitentiary, this big Gothic prison in the middle of Missouri, a year earlier in 67, he was in there for a long prison sentence for this armed robbery. He had escaped. He's on the run. He went to Canada. He went down to Mexico. He went to Birmingham. He went to Los Angeles. Um, he got a nose job at one point. He took dancing lessons at the uh, at the Robert Murray uh, you know dance school. He went to bartending school. He sold some marijuana when he was in Mexico. He bought a Mustang convertible, more money than he ever had in his life. So he's an unusual guy. And a lot of what he said he did was directed by a guy he met a few months after he escaped from jail up in Canada, Montreal, called Raul. That's all he knew him by. Yeah. And this guy yeah. Raul. Yeah, directed him to go ahead and do everything. He directed him to go to Birmingham and to buy the car and to do the marijuana and to go to L.A. and told him when to start to follow King, told him when to buy the gun, which was right before the assassination, which gun to buy, and that all he did, all Ray did, was met Raul at the hotel, uh, the Lorraine Motel, which was this flophouse hotel across from where King was staying in Memphis, and uh, he went there because Raul told him to. He brought the gun because Raul told him to. And then he left the hotel right before the the assassination uh, to get some gas and some other things. And when he was on his way back, he saw the police because Raul, had, he found out later, had killed King. And then Ray was on the run. So Raul's the mystery man, the puppet master who pulls the strings. Ray's only the poor Patsy who goes along. Now, for years, 
people who thought Ray was innocent believed that there was some character called Raul. They wanted to believe it. Uh, and Ray would give different variations of it, what he looked like, but Ray never identified anyone as Raul. So he never picked anyone out of a lineup. He never looked at a picture that anybody gave him and said, that's Raul. Until the year before he died, when the King family had already come in and said, and Ray died in 98, the King family said, we think you're innocent. He had a new lawyer representing him, Bill Pepper, and they're trying to get the, a rehearing. Ray figured, what do I have to lose? And so he picked a face out of a group of pictures shown to him and said, that's Raul. Well, that gave me, investigators, the district attorney, the FBI, whoever else was investigating it, the ability to go out and find out if the person Ray picked out was actually Raul. And it turns out he's a Portuguese, he is Portuguese, he's an auto worker who had wor ended up working for four, uh, for over 30 years, lives in upstate New York, he's married, has a family, he's retired. He had never been to Tennessee, had never been to Memphis. He hadn't. He was working, we pulled his, his old work records up, on all the days when Ray was supposed to have met with him. Ray actually gave a person that you could quantify the, and without any doubt say, we know one thing for sure. If there was a Raul, it's not the Raul that Ray identified. And so when he blew that hole in his case, I think he essentially blew his entire alibi out after all those years. Well, um, I have a couple of thoughts, if, if you don't mind revisiting a, a couple of things we've already talked about. Um, let's let's go back, back to when he was in prison and the King family came and visited him. Yeah, yes, he was extremely racist, but in my opinion, working in the industry, sometimes prison can actually change you. I mean, he was convicted of an absolute infamous crime and made... Maybe he had time to think and re-evaluate his own personal beliefs. Yes, interesting. So you would think that that would be one of the things that would happen, could happen inside of prison. But Ray was unapologetic in this sense. He never wrote a letter, never gave anything to his attorney, never said to the Kings, oh, by the way, uh, my... My views of the past are, are wrong. You know, he was a big George Wallace supporter. He got in a fight in a bar in '68. George Wallace was sort of right-wing governor running for for president. He never changed any of that, and he and he never took back the fact. Uh, and this was brought up to him a number of times that when he'd been serving time before he had gone into to Missouri State Prison, he'd been in a state penitentiary, and he was doing pretty good time. This was his uh, second time in prison. They offered him the chance to go to this farm for work that's part of the prison uh, and it would make his stay there easier. But it was sure. a mixed race um, operation. There were blacks and whites on this work farm and he refused because it was in fact, uh, he would not work with uh, any of the uh, the black inmates. He never uh, took that back. Okay. So uh, I think that for the King family, they thought that no matter what his views about race, since they really did believe, and I think this was sincere on their part, they didn't, you know, it's not, not insincere, since they were sincere about thinking he had been set up for the assassination, they were just willing to look beyond that. And, and take the high road. That's and, right. And, and, and show forgiveness, because, yes. you know, Martin, you know, Martin Luther, he was all about forgiveness, you know, let's take the high road, let's be peaceful about this, and so maybe that was the embodiment of all of what he was teaching. Um, but something else I'd like to touch on, the police reopened the investigation based on what the Kings had to say. Now, uh, again, I work in law enforcement, and that is an extremely difficult thing to do. Once a prosecutor gets a conviction, they're not easily led to let go of that. Do you think they were willing to reevaluate it simply because, and I'm air quoting, it was the King family? No, I'll tell you, uh, there, were, there are two things that happened. It would, the King family carries a tremendous amount of weight because they are, in fact, they are the King family. And, and the murder in Memphis was a great stain on Memphis, so they're very sensitive to it in Memphis. If the King family themselves had said, you know, Kevin and Al, if they said, we think that Ray's innocent, 
we've read all the books and uh, and Ray's told us he's innocent and from our perspective uh, the case should be reopened. I don't think it would have been reopened. What the King family had was something else. Not only did they believe it, not only did they have all that political power, but in, in 93, a few years earlier, on ABC's Primetime Live, uh, this, uh, at that time, 67-year-old guy, uh, Lloyd Jowers, who owned the grill that was uh, near the hotel where the, the assassin killed King, came out and said, um, I'm really the shooter. I'm the guy who had the gun. I went in the back, and I shot King from the, the grassy area right behind my grill, and then went back in and continued to serve lunch for the rest of the day. It wasn't great at all. He was set up, and um, I've never said this before. Now, it turns out that you have a witness at the sinking, and he was a real witness, so it's not somebody, one of these guys who made it up and put himself in place, who had given early statements to the police and the FBI that he didn't see anything, nothing happened. Now he comes out, uh, you know, 25 years later on national television and says, I was involved. Now you've got the King family saying, citing that, and their general disbelief, yeah, it was enough to reopen the investigation. Now, it turned out that in the course of that investigation, they found out that Jowers and the person that he was with uh, were trying to sell the story, and they kept putting, they kept adding details that you were demonstrably false, they thought would up the value of the story. So the story fell apart, but there was enough initially to reopen that investigation. And, and didn't Dexter, Martin Luther's son, have a, one of those... Uh mock trials that was televised for Ray and Jowers and all that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the uh, interesting things about the uh, the mock trial, as it is, is uh, it, they, they had... So Dr. Pepper, who uh, <laughs> was the attorney for uh, James uh, Earl Ray, and you know, he has a book out, just like Mark Wayne, who uh, is an attorney as well and put out a book on the Kennedy assassination uh, and was the defense lawyer for Marguerite Oswald, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, mother. Um, I often say you have to remember when you read those books uh, from those attorneys, they aren't historians writing the straightforward story of what happened in the case. They are defense attorneys making the best possible presentation for their clients, and, and they do that very well. And so what actually happened is uh, that they decided to hold a televised trial, and I think that it was a, uh, between a British production company and HBO, and they did, in fact, uh, run that trial. They, it was interesting. They videotaped the, the interviews. Uh, they, they packaged some of the old issues together with new witnesses, um, he had his own investigators, Peppers did. Uh, they picked, it was what I call the great cherry picking. You get to pick the case you want to present. Um, and uh, there was, the, the prosecution in it was essentially non-existent to the extent that it existed. But uh, after that mock trial aired, uh, the, uh, the, the jury came back and said, we think that there was likely a, uh, a conspiracy in this. And it's based largely on the... Uh, testimony of uh, Jowers, which was later proven to be uh, uh, the part that fell apart. So, you know, I look at that mock trial, and I often see it cited, and people say, oh, a jury came to conclude that there was a, uh, a case here. But uh, I go into it, I have an entire chapter called the mock trial. I go to it in far more detail than most people will actually be willing to read or will want to read, but it will take you through why I think that mock trial was a, uh, was a scam. Mm -hmm. Now, Gerald, can I steer us in a completely different direction? And I think that this is relevant to the entire picture. You were talking about J. Edgar Hoover was collecting information on, on Dr. King. Right. And, you know, rather than have him killed and create a martyr, he was trying to publicly destroy his reputation. I happen to know, using high-level sources... No, no, that's an inside joke between me and Al. But I do, I do happen to know that there is an FBI file on Dr. King, and Coretta has managed to have it sealed for an extraordinary amount of years. What you know? First of all, how would she be able to do that? 
And do you think that some valuable information that you may need is included in those files? What is in those files? Yeah, so, I mean, this is interesting. So what happened is um, the, the FBI released about 16,000 pages of uh, material on the King assassination back in 1984. So it took them quite a while to get to that stage. Where it, it, and out came, it was Freedom of Information Act, and the Bureau said, this is our entire file, it was all on paper, and, uh, and, and that was the end of it. Well, what happens is, of course, it turns out it's not the entire file because they only released what was directly related to the investigation of the murder itself. So as a result of that, there were bills that were proposed in 2010 while President Obama was in office, uh, and they really were put out. To, it's called, I think it's like the, the, the Dr. King uh, Legislative Review Act, or that, sort of like the JFK Act, to go ahead, go through government files and release other FBI, CIA intelligence files, Army files, whatever else, on the King assassination or on, on Martin Luther King himself. They, that was finally passed in like 2006. So it's still pending. Believe it or not, we still don't have the release of records on a whole series of things when it relates to Martin Luther King, including all of what the FBI's uh, investigations, legal and non-legal, were before the assassination. And uh, we don't know what the FBI may have destroyed before the day. These questions unanswered. But you are absolutely right that Coretta Scott King and the King family wants to make sure in some ways that what is released doesn't include, does not include personal information that might otherwise um, be denigrated. Yeah, so, uh, and, and this is a fine line to walk. So, they, you know, they're, they're asking for, the, on the one hand, for... Uh, you know, the release of all the relevant documents that show the, the historical role of the government. On the other hand, if, if some scurrilous personal information came up, and a, he had, assuming for a second that Dr. King had an affair here or there, they don't want to, um, to have that information out in any more detail. And I understand why they would clearly want that, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough one to get uh, in successfully, uh, you know, to get that through. Um, it will be hard. The, um, and you should note also, by the way, uh, there's one last thing. I'm sorry about this. It, it's sort of it, no, it's no, no. Great. We're talking about it. I haven't talked about the King assassination in a while, um, but uh, then little parts of the memory bank all of a sudden ring here. Uh, people often forget that when King and his uh, colleagues and those around him were secretly wiretapped, illegally wiretapped. In with hidden microphones in their homes, offices, hotel rooms. That was approved by the Attorney General at the time, in 1963, Robert Kennedy. He granted that FBI request. Those documents are out there. There's not a question of historical thing. He, I mean, he'd given the okay because they weren't sure about King. Uh, people often forget about that. In 1977, we're talking way after the, 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 the Kennedys, the end of uh, this, in 77, a court order, a federal court, sealed the transcripts of those surveillance tapes for 50 years. So mm -hmm. that is the 2077. Uh, that's what some of the congressional efforts have tried to get out a little bit earlier. But the actual surveillance tapes themselves, the stuff that may contain the personally most incriminating material, that would, in fact, be sealed by that judge's order until a point uh, way past, uh, we won't be here to see it. Um, and there was that movie, Selma, which brought up the controversy about Martin Luther King's uh, extra sex affairs he had on his wife. I, I don't know why that was such a, there's a lot of people upset about that. I'm not sure why that was um, such a controversy in a way. Well, I, I think that the, the reaction from King colleagues that I've spoken to who take sort of offense at it. They don't deny that uh, Dr. King, in fact, had, a, you know, a extramarital affairs. What they think is that that issue is used to somehow 
cloud uh, or to minimize or to distract people from the government's own illegal investigation at the time. That it's an effort to switch the subject to say, oh, Hoover was a terrible guy. They did all these illegal wiretaps and everything else. But remember, Dr. King, who was preaching, you know, high mor took the high moral ground on everything and uh, was the, the American Gandhi of his time in nonviolence and was shaking up the, uh, the routine, he really had a terrible personal life, so he was a hypocrite. That's what they're trying to avoid. Um, and, and I understand that. They don't want it to be used. It's, it's part of King's personal history. It's part of a story about him. It's been written about by serious historians. Um, but it, it, I understand why they might be somewhat sensitive to it because they don't want it to become the issue. And, that's, and that makes sense to me. Yeah. And, I, and, and I understand that as well. However, given you know, the mindset of today's society, would that really outweigh his contribution to society? Oh, no, no, Kevin, I think you're absolutely right. Looking at it through the prism of 2017, it seems sort of remarkably antiquated in some ways that it was such an issue. But, you know, I think back, I'm old enough to remember a time uh, on television, like with the, the Dick Van Dyke show or that, um, I'm dating myself quite a bit here, where you couldn't show a husband and wife in the same bed together. Uh, I remember... Yeah, all right. Desi and Lucy. Yeah, all right. So fair enough. And we've gone to a spot where you, you know, you used to say in in uh, America that you could never have a president who was divorced as president. You know, we got past that. Uh, and uh, then you say you could never have a president who admitted, you know, to to using marijuana or anything else. We got past that. So yeah. I mean, the barriers keep falling. And I think that the idea today that somebody who, you know was um, a great leader on many fronts, but had a flawed personal life, boy, time and time again, we're seeing that that doesn't matter to the public nearly as much as it seemed to matter back uh, 30, 40 years ago. Yes, because, I mean, to me, and, and this is just us guys talking, you know, it would show the more human side of him. He was a man, and, and he had human flaws. However, he was able to make this humongous contribution, you know, to American history. Yes, I, yeah, I agree. It's very interesting when you say that, because I do think that what happens is we can sometimes look at people like uh, Dr. King who have done great things, and you think to yourself, okay, they, they've got to be saints, and anything that takes away from that is bad. And in fact, um, I think that it's a reminder to all of us that uh, you know, nobody's perfect. Remember this, everybody has, you know, some types of flaws, sometimes there are personal flaws like this. And so uh, the idea that uh, he uh, was flawed in that way, I agree with you. It just makes him, for me, uh, to, uh, more more human and, uh, and not necessary. I'm, I'm always worried about perfect people. They worry me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> um, the uh, Now, of course, Kevin's into the conspiracy, and he's on that side, and I'm, I'm on. Yes, I am. And so um, I, I'm not as easily swayed. But I will say, I, you know, you've covered Kennedy, and uh, look at all the killings in the 60s, you know, both Kennedys, MLK, um, Malcolm X. Uh, right. There, there was so much of that going on. Uh, it, it sure makes it look like there was... Uh, so, it's some sort of suggestion of, of conspiracy, and in in, in that's the way you get rid of people that you don't want. Yeah, no, 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 I, I understand that. I do think, look, at, and remember, there's something here. I've always said, uh, and I say this about both, in the, I've never studied the RFK assassination as a subject, uh, uh, nor, you know, or the attempted assassination on Wallace, um, or the, uh, but in the, case of JFK and in the case of MLK, very clearly, I'm sure, there's no doubt, there were conspiracies brewing against them um, that wanted those people dead. I mean, and I'm sure that when Barack Obama was in office, that there were, there were people talking about the possibility of killing him. The same thing today with uh, President Trump or any U.S. president. It could be Muslim extremists, it could be white supremacists, it could be anti-abortion people, it could be, uh, you know, uh, end-of-the-world Armageddon people. Uh, you, you could pick your choice, uh, 
But there may be, and in the case of uh, Jack Kennedy, it could have been the mafia as well. They absolutely hated what Bobby Kennedy was doing. So I have no doubt, as I always say, that at any given point, you you pick in a presidency or, let's say, in a high-profile public figure, somebody running for the presidency like Bobby Kennedy was, somebody trying to shake up society like Martin Luther King, there are conspiracies brewing where somebody's sitting down and saying, I want to kill that no-good SOB. Now, sometimes they take the first step for fulfilling the conspiracy. Sometimes they're just in the talking stage. But what I know is that in the case of Kennedy and of King, Oswald essentially beat the big conspiracies and, and Ray beat the big conspiracies to murdering their victim. What I mean by that is, the, in, in the case of Jack Kennedy, Carlos Marcello, or, uh, who was head of the New Orleans mob, might have pinned a medal on Oswald. Um, there were people in the CIA who hated Kennedy who might have said, you did a great job. Uh, uh, and so, uh, and there were Russians and Cubans uh, in, under Castro who didn't like Kennedy after the Cuban Missile Crisis standoff who would have thought Oswald was a hero. But the fact that they would have done that didn't mean they carried it out. So I think that's the tough part we have. You said, you know, the 60s sort of seemed discombobulated in a time of violence and mm-hmm. political assassinations and some connection. I understand why you would, you know, somebody could think that off the bat. Uh, and especially because the people who were getting killed, except for the assassination attempt on Wallace and, um, uh, and the Malcolm X was in a completely different way as well, seemed to be the people who were on the progressive liberal end. Uh, pushing the agenda forward. So, you, you know, although, uh, and so I understand why that, that first glance you say there had to be a connection between all of these. It's only upon examining them that it's sort of the strange fabric of the 60s um, that plays a part here that allows it to happen. But it is, it is uh, one of those craziest decades uh, ever in American history. Yeah, it seemed, well, seemed fashionable, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I. You know, but there's something else when you say it seems fashionable. It's, it's a sidelight because I've often thought about this. We don't know in in terms of history. We can never know how many times a man or a woman, a, a, a somebody who wants to be an assassin, wants to kill a congressman, a congresswoman, a head of a political bureau, somebody running for office, a public figure, like they killed John Lennon. Uh, how somebody may or they shot Reagan. Somebody might have gone to a political rally or to a public event with a gun, a pistol or that, hoping to get a chance to shoot this person they hated. They never get the opportunity, so they end up leaving, and that assassination attempt never happens. So, for instance, if when Oswald went to the sixth floor of the depository in Dallas that day, if his workmates, three or four of them on the same floor, had not left for lunch 30 minutes earlier, he would not have taken his rifle out. This wasn't a suicide mission. He was going to have to let that day pass. It wasn't that committed to dying himself there. If on the day that um, Bobby Kennedy was killed, he had followed the original plan, which was to go out the front of the Ambassador Hotel, but it was so late at night when he won the California primary, they decided to go out through the rear and through the kitchen. That's where Sirhan was. Sirhan would never have had the opportunity yeah. to shoot him. We never would have learned about him. When Wallace gets shot by Brennan, he passes that area where Brennan can shoot him, but comes back to reach a baby at some point, so he walks back close enough that Brennan's able to reach out and take the shot at him. You know that with John Lennon, you know, he's, he's Chapman's sitting out there for hours, he's almost ready to leave, and then Lennon comes up. So in these successful assassinations, there's a bit of luck involved. Um, I know that seems odd to say that there's luck involved, but the luck has to be that the assassin has to get the opportunity to take the shot. And in addition, especially with Jack Kennedy, the security was so different than it is today. And even with Bobby Kennedy, you know, you have Rosie Greer, you have a football player who's his friend who's the biggest security around him as he's going out. Uh, today, it's much, not that it's impossible, and I certainly don't mean to say that, and while they're campaigning for office, they give a lot of opportunities, but it's more difficult. And clearly the Secret Service has made it clear to any potential assassin that if you do try to kill the president or a senator or that, you're probably going to end up dying yourself. It's a suicide job. So, yeah, yeah I think in the 60s, it seemed more, it seemed a more achievable act, and it turned out it was unfortunate. Today, Justin Bieber has better security than they did back then. Yeah, I, I think that's, that is true, because, you know, uh, Al, Kevin, sometimes people say to me, okay, so, um, 
the, the Secret Service, they, I mean, they must have seen somebody pointing, whether it's Oswald or whoever, pointing a rifle off the sixth floor of a building by which the motorcade's going. The Secret Service must have seen that. And I said, you know, it's hard to imagine, but the Secret Service didn't sweep buildings at that time. Uh, they, they didn't uh, run checks for building employees against uh, known people on trouble lists or that they had under investigation. Uh, they, it, it was a whole different era. The driver of the car in 1963 coming out of duty deposit didn't even take evasive action after hearing the first shots. So, you know, we're talking about a different period uh, in terms of uh, presidential security. And I don't just mean presidential security, but all around. Um, that's not to say these assassinations still couldn't have happened, and it could still happen today. I understand that. But uh, they definitely made it more difficult. Well, a uh, serious, serious question. A few minutes ago, I was listening to you and Al discuss the 60s and how many assassinations had actually taken place in the 60s. And, you know, I'm sitting here trying to reconcile why Martin Luther King. And, you know, we were talking about conspiracies and everything. So putting it all together, here's a thought that I had, and I'd like to get your, your thoughts on it. Thinking conspiratorially, Martin Luther King was, was bringing black America together. And he was preaching nonviolence. We can get what we need through nonviolence. And millions of people were willing to follow him. Black, white, uh, all races. Do you think that perhaps he was assassinated because he would have been Possibly the first black president. You know, I, I think, he, well, he was definitely assassinated because of what you just said a second ago, Kevin, and that is the tremendous success he was having at galvanizing the movement, doing it through nonviolence, bringing uh, uh, the, uh, the civil rights movement together, clearly had a power to it, when, uh, you know, pushing Lyndon Johnson in 64 to get it through Congress, the Civil Rights Act, and then turning against the Vietnam War. No doubt about it, he was a power force. And that's why the white supremacists and the racists who put up the 50000 at least $50,000 bounty from uh, St. Louis that I believe ended up uh, enticing Ray wanted him dead because they knew that King was a successful, powerful leader of a movement. Whether he could have been the first black president, I don't know because I will tell you that if you had asked me 15 years ago, will the country have a... Um, a black president or a woman as president first, I probably would have said a woman. And I thought that it would have been harder, and Barack Obama proved that wrong. So the, I just don't know if you could have had a black president elected in, uh, in 1968 or 1972, um, although they used to say you'd never have a Catholic elected, and Jack Kennedy got elected in 1960. So, you know, politics will often prove you wrong. You couldn't get a reality TV star elected in Trump's <laughs> office. I don't know. Could have been. I'm not sure. But I don't know. The Rock is running in 2020. That's true. But there's one thing that you can guarantee, and that is that if he had gone into politics himself and had run for the presidency, all of that dirt, the private dirt, the, the, the personal affairs, Hoover and the FBI would have made sure that that got leaked out to the columnists of the Washington Post or the New York Times or were favorable columnists or whatever else. That information would have been out. And that might have hurt King more than anything else at a time when that was still a big issue, you know, back 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. What, what, what was um, Ray's motive in killing King? Uh, you know, some people have ascribed to Ray a larger, grander motive, like he thought he was going to start a race revolution or that he was going to be the person in the history books who was going to be forever remembered for this and that. I don't well, see Ray as that. I see Ray... So was Manson. Yeah, that's right. Manson truly was. Yeah, Manson did have ideas of grandeur and, and that. No question about it. And I think, and uh, although a lot of people may disagree with me, the Oswald that I came to understand, although he was only just turned 24 years old, also had ideas of grandeur. But Ray didn't have that. Ray was older. Remember, most assassins, I'm going to give you a great overstatement now. Your listeners will call in with 20 exceptions to this. But generally, assassins are often in their 20s. They're young enough to still have the zeal to want to pick up a gun and change history. And, and they sort of haven't gotten old enough to say, oh, hell, I'm not going to do that. 
Ray was unusual because he was 40 years old. He was a year older than King. We forget that King was only 39 years old when he was killed. He looks, he looks older. He looks so That's mature. That's true. That's and true. So, so Ray, when he kills him, why does a 40-year-old convict, a guy who's had some violent felonies, but basically he's living his life as a, as a criminal, he's taken, you know, uh, Arthur Murray dance courses, he's taken a bartending class, he's He's on the run. Why does he all of a sudden commit himself to political assassination when he hasn't shown this long history of it? And my belief is, it, 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 the answer to your question is money. The Rays, and I say the Rays for me and the family, but James Earl Ray, the only one I can prove it about, uh, they were always motivated by money. It's been their God. They were always looking for the big hit. And $50,000 for the life of a civil rights leader, might, you might think today, oh, that's impossible. Nobody would do it for 50000 Fifty thousand was big money for the race. They were robbing banks and postal offices for fifteen hundred and two thousand dollar returns. So fifty thousand was like hitting the lottery. I think it was money he was chasing. This was a big payoff. Killing King was something he was willing to do for that amount of money. Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Fifty. I mean, even 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 if I I don't I understand that, but. Wow. I mean, it, well, it's only $50,000. But, Kevin, I, no, I agree with you. I understand that. But the thing is, and one of the things I do, I try to do in, in presenting it in writing, is the first, I don't know, third or 40% of the book, maybe a third, is a, a biography of Ray. Because as I got to understand Ray, I got to understand how I thought he would operate and think and what he would do. And I think the reader needs to understand that. Because, you know, sometimes what happens is you hear the name, like, James Earl Ray, you hear the name Lee Harvey Oswald, you don't know anything really about them. There's some cipher, they become some stick figure, you think, oh, okay, they're a patsy, you might know their age, or things like that, but you really don't know their history. When you get into studying who they are, you get to understand them as the men they were, then some of their actions make more sense. So, I don't think it was just money, because Ray did have this denigrating view of blacks, this racist view. He did subscribe, and this is one of the things that's interesting, I think, about Ray. We, we forget about this. So here he is when I say he's doing all of this, uh, you know, like uh, the dance courses and, and everything else. That's true. But he is also, um, he's inquires with the official government embassy in Washington to immigrate to Rhodesia in a year before the assassination. Rhodesia was right run at the time. He wanted a passport to Rhodesia. He thought it would be a place, he gets a hold of this American Southern African Council, which is pretty much a group that's uh, all composed about separating whites and blacks. He is advertising and, and taking out uh, subscriptions to the John Birch Society, a very right-wing organization. Uh, and so Ray has a streak of politics that is not just right-wing like George Wallace, but is also very separationist in terms of how he views black and white should be. The area for him that's doing it right is Rhodesia and South Africa, and that curiosity that he has initially about those two countries, he becomes a member of the Friends of Rhodesia, a very right-wing uh, racist organization. I think mm -hmm. that when he gets the bounty offer on King, killing King is something that isn't just for money, it's a combination of factors, but... It, he might even like the idea of being able to knock off the most prominent and successful black preacher in the country. But the money was the inducement for him. If somebody asked Ray to do it for free, the Ray I came to understand would say no. And Free and, wasn't his vocabulary. And that's what I was hoping that you would say, because I'm trying to create, in my mind, the perfect storm for it, to create an assassin. And, and given Ray's mindset, if he was that racist and was connected with, you know, white supremacy, knowing white supremacists the way that I do, they would, you know, see this as an honorable thing. I, I am going to kill this, this African American who is potentially, you know, one of the greatest idols to all blacks in America, but I'm going to need just a little bit more, and maybe the money was able to tip him over that fence, but to them, they see it as more of an honorable thing. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's very interesting, because um, 
There is no doubt. He knew where to go. What I mean by he knew where to go, when the assassination was finished and he spent 11 hours driving from Memphis down to Atlanta, um, back roads, uh, Ray, who didn't have a lot of money, threw everything out of his car that he could along the side roads. He had these tape recorders, some he had uh, this uh, camera that he bought, other material. He gets the car, he parks it in a, a public housing project, wipes it clean and fingerprints, gets on a bus and goes to Canada. Now, the one thing I can say to you with absolute certainty is that no matter what the bounty was that he was looking at, no matter what he thought he was going to get for money, he hadn't gotten any of it by the time he got to Canada. Because if he had, he would have made it to Rhodesia or South Africa, where he would have been hailed as a bit of a hero. Um, the reason I know he didn't get any of the money then is he was like 120 or $130, I have to check the exact amount short, of buying the ticket that would get him to one of those two countries. So he sort of said to them, well, what's the... You know, what ticket can I buy to an English-speaking country? And that was England. So he figured, fine, that's where he ended up going. He flew over there. He had enough money for that. He then tries to get to Rhodesia and Portugal, uh, 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 Rhodesia and South Africa a number of times, even by taking a ship out of Portugal. He never ends up getting enough money. He even robs a jewelry store while he's in London to do it. He's finally flying out of London uh, on the next leg when he gets arrested in June. So... For me, he was smart enough to know that he had to run to a part of the world where they would say, oh, that was a pretty good thing you did, but that was only two countries in the world at that time. Yeah. Well, uh, we're, we're just running out of time, and this is incredible. Thank you for another great show. Um, I, I can't say enough. It's always a pleasure having uh, you on, or, or your wife. Or <laughs> yes, we yeah. had another you know, we're both right now, Trisha was going to do another book, um, but I'm using her now. I've taken her, you know, we we sort of do books with each other. When I put my name on the bottom of a book, uh, we do the research together, then I write the first draft, and then she edits it. When she puts her name on the bottom of a book, we do the research together. She writes the book, and then I sort of edit it. And now we're doing a book where I will put my name on the bottom of it. It's about uh, the American pharmaceutical industry from the turn of the century, 1900s, to the current day. So... We're deeply immersed in, in big pharma. Uh, <laughs> in a couple of years, I'm sure we'll be talking to you about it. I hope so. That's fa fascinating. Um, our guest has been Gerald Posner, and the book we're talking about is Killing the Dream. But uh, just check his name out or his website, and there's plenty of great books by him. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Al, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a treat to talk to the two of you. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.